You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of John George Haig. On September 9th, 1944, William McSwan met a friend at a pub called The Goat in Kensington, London. After that, his parents were informed that William had run away to Scotland in order to avoid military duty and was never seen again. Fast forward to the 2nd of July, 1945, and the McSwans, Donald and Amy, the parents of William, disappeared. Their landlady was told that they had decided to take an extended trip to America. In February of 1948, Dr. Archibald Henderson left the Metropole Hotel in Brighton, followed some time later by his wife, Rose. Their hotel bill was paid, but they were never seen again. Rose's brother did receive a letter that said Dr. Henderson had performed an abortion illegal at the time, and had fled with his wife to South Africa in order to avoid any legal repercussions. The next year, on February 18, 1949, 69-year-old widow Olive Durand Deacon left her home in the Onslow Court Hotel in South Kensington in London, accompanied by another resident. She was a wealthy 69-year-old widow and had lived in the hotel for a number of years. She left with a younger man named John George Haig. He was a salesman and an engineer who had been developing an idea with her for false fingernails. Olive Durand Deacon never returned. The next day, one of her fellow residents at the hotel and friend, Constance Lane, became worried about her disappearance. She had not been seen at dinner the night before and was now not present at breakfast. It was unlike Olive to be away overnight without telling her. John George Haig approached her to inquire what had happened to Olive. She was shocked. Surely he would have a better idea, as they had been to the factory together the afternoon before. He stated that Olive had changed their plans and that he was to finish his lunch before meeting her at a nearby shop to travel to Crawley, but she hadn't turned up in order to go with him to his workshop to inspect materials that might be suitable for the production of false nails. John said he was worried and helped Miss Lane in her inquiries to try and find Olive. Constance decided to check Olive's room, and when there was no answer to her loud knock, she had a chambermaid open the door for her. The room was immaculate, and her night things were laid out ready for bed. It was obvious Mrs. Durand Deacon had not slept in the bed the night before. But John George Haig was helpful, and after a day had passed when Olive had still not turned up, he accompanied Constance to the police station to report her missing. 
They travelled together, and he recounted to the police how they had planned to meet, but that she had not kept the date, and had not been seen since before lunchtime on the 18th of February, two days before. The factory that Olive was to visit with her friend John was Hursley Products in West Street, Crawley. It had been built by John's friend, Edward Jones, who had grown the business from a small workshop nearby at Leopold Road. The small workshop was kept on as a storage house after the factory moved in 1947. John had said that he had a directorship of the company, but had in fact only been offered that in return for a £200 investment that John had made when he and Edward were working on a needle threading machine. The experiments came to nothing, and so went the idea of the directorship. John George Haig was born on the 24th of July 1909 to parents John Robert and Emily in Stamford, Lincolnshire, though he grew up in a village in West Riding, Yorkshire. They were members of a religious sect called the Plymouth Brethren, which was a very conservative Christian group, banning all forms of social entertainment and even sports. Reading the Bible and playing religious songs on the piano was John's only entertainment as a child. They believed the world was an evil place, and this was further demonstrated by the large wall that surrounded the family home. Despite being anti-clerical, however, John was eventually sent to the Church of England Cathedral as a choir boy in Wakefield, which was very high church at the time meaning that it was quite ritualistic and the complete antithesis of the Plymouth Brethren lifestyle. John was an average student and after leaving school worked first in an engineering firm and then in insurance and advertising. He moved from job to job, once being fired for theft. In 1934, he met and married Betty Hammer after a short courtship and despite Betty's second thoughts. They moved in with his parents, but a short time later, John was arrested for forging documents in his business. He was sentenced to 15 months in prison, and Betty left and filed for divorce. She was pregnant at the time, and when the baby was born while John was serving his time, she gave her up for adoption. John never saw his daughter. In the end, he and Betty didn't divorce, but Betty never saw John again. After John got out of prison, he briefly became involved in a dry-cleaning business, but this venture ended when his business partner died in a road accident. John then moved to London and became a chauffeur and mechanic for William McSwan. They became fast friends. After a year of working for the McSwans, John moved on and set up his own business, masquerading as a solicitor. He would take people's money and cash their checks without providing any services whatsoever. Eventually, this caught up with him, and he ended up serving another four years in prison on fraud charges. Shortly after that release, John was again sent to jail for theft and served nearly another two years. John was broke at the time Olive Durant went missing. He owed the manager at the hotel £50 for his lodging and had an overdraft of over £80 with the bank. He had gambling debts of over £350. 
That afternoon, Olive had met with John and they drove the two hours in John's sports car to the factory in Crawley. Before setting about their task of reviewing the material that he proposed using for the false fingernails, they stopped into a local pub for Miss Duran Deacon to use the bathroom, as there wasn't one in the workshop on Leopold Street. There was a yard outside the building, and it was full of a jumble of debris and lumber. Olive must have looked completely out of place in the ramshackle yard leading to the workshop. She was an attractive older woman, dressed in an expensive Persian lamb coat and fine jewellery, and she was carrying a stylish red handbag. The inside of the workshop mirrored the yard. It was a run-down and damp building, with a workbench in the middle of the ground-floor room, which was full of tools. There was a large industrial-type apron and a number of vats of liquid in the workshop, along with a large green drum. As Olive bent to look at the material that John was showing her for the false nail enterprise, he shot her in the head. She fell to the ground dead. He staunched the wound in the back of her head to stop the blood from getting on the floor and then carefully removed her coat. He removed her earrings and jewellery and went through her handbag, removing the small amount of money and her pen. He then threw her handbag into the large green drum. He then went over to the main factory on West Street and told his friend Edward that the investors that he had expected to meet to discuss fingernails hadn't turned up. He then went back to the storehouse to deal with Olive's body. He spent some time tying up her arms close to her body with pieces of electric cable and strapped her legs up close to her chest. Then, lying the green drum on its side, he pushed the fourteen-stone woman into the slightly too small drum. He pushed the drum upright and then decided to take a break from his work. He drove to a restaurant in Crawley for dinner, returning to the storehouse after he had eaten. When he returned, he put on a raincoat and the large rubber apron, along with some rubber gloves. He began to fill the drum with sulfuric acid and watched as it began to bubble and froth as it began breaking down Olive's clothing and the outer layers of skin and fat. He gave the disgusting stew a stir before he left it to do its work. He locked the door to the storehouse behind him as he left. The next day, after speaking to Constance Lane, Haig travelled back to Crawley. On the way there, he stopped by a jeweller's and sold Olive's watch for ten pounds. When he got to the storehouse and checked on the progress of Ms. Durand Deacon's body, he discovered that the acid had been making slow work of the well-built woman. He stirred the vat and saw that there were still chunks of fat and bone floating in the sludge so he went off to another jewellery shop with Olive's bracelets and rings and then brought her coat to a cleaner's to ensure that it was in good nick before he sold it off. He drove back to London to meet his girlfriend Barbara for Saturday afternoon tea. John had met his girlfriend when she was 15 years old and he was around 20 years older than her. Her father had had business dealings with John, and during the war, John had actually moved into their house after his lodgings were bombed. Barbara was taken with his good looks, the way he dressed and presented himself, 
and her parents were happy with the match because John seemed so successful. John met Barbara at the hotel and took her to the dining room for afternoon tea. She noted that he looked in good form, and he agreed. He said that this was because a business deal was going well. He also mentioned to her that the woman that he had been discussing the false fingernail enterprise with had gone missing. That evening, they went to Madame Tussaud's waxworks, and John made her go into the House of Horrors to look at all the gruesome scenes and the notorious killers lined up inside. The next morning, Ms. Lane noted Olive's absence at breakfast yet again and was approached by John Haig to ask if she had heard anything about her yet. She said that she hadn't heard or seen anything and she was going to have to report the disappearance to the police. John said that he would go with her. They would wait until after lunch and if there was still no sign of Olive, then Haig would drive Miss Lane in his treasured Alvis sports car. When they arrived at the police station, Ms. Lane announced to the desk clerk that she wished to report a missing woman, and was shown into a room to make a report to Sergeant Lamborn, a policewoman in her mid-thirties. They described the events of the last two days and that Olive wouldn't have left without telling Ms. Lane or at least informing the hotel management of her plans to go away. She described how the hotel was a residence for a number of retirees, well, all excepting John, and Haig told the policewoman that he and Olive had been thinking about entering into a business arrangement. There was something off about the man that the policewoman couldn't quite put her finger on, but it certainly seemed strange to her that a young man would choose to live in a hotel full of mainly retired older women. The sergeant brought her suspicions to her superior, and it was decided that she would go to the hotel the next day to investigate further. Sergeant Lamburn arrived unannounced at the hotel after ringing around hospitals and doctors to see if they'd turned anything up about Olive, to no avail. The hotel manageress told the policewoman that Olive had only ever stayed away from the hotel for any length of time once before, and she would usually inform someone if she was to be away for even a meal. The manageress's report was not as warm when the policewoman asked about John Haig. He was described as one of the worst payers in the hotel, and that he seemed more like a smooth operator than the smart businessman that he liked to present himself as. She told how he had recently been behind in his bills to the tune of £50, and that they had to keep asking until he finally paid the lot in cash in the last week. She told Sergeant Lamburn that Haig had never even mentioned that Olive hadn't turned up to meet him the day she disappeared, and that he hadn't returned for dinner that night either. Lamburn was suspicious, and when she returned to the station and checked the records for John George Haig, it turned out that he had not only been convicted of obtaining money by false pretenses and forging checks, he'd also spent a decent amount of time in prison for his various frauds. Meanwhile, the next day, Haig decided to check on the progress of the acid in the workroom. The soup was still a lumpy mixture, but with the police starting to ask questions, he decided it would be best to be rid of the remains. He collected bucketfuls of the thick liquid and tossed them out into the yard until he was only left with clods of fat and bone. And then he topped up the drum with more acid. 
He left it yet again to do its work and decided to have more of Olive's jewellery valued. The valuation came in at £130, and he continued on his way. After his lunch at the hotel, Haig was approached by a member of staff and told that there were two men waiting to see him. They were two policemen, and they were following up on his visit to the station and Sergeant Lamborn's trip to the Onslow court. They questioned him about his story of making arrangements with Ms. Durandeacon to meet her at a shop and how he had waited for her for an hour before going to Crawley alone. They questioned him as to why he had made no inquiries after Ms. Durandeacon when he arrived back at the hotel to see what had become of her and to make sure she was all right. They asked why he chose to live in such circumstances, surrounded by old deers. He stated that he had lived in a nearby bedsit, but now that he was better off he could afford to live elsewhere, and he knew the area well. The officers thanked John for his time and told him that they would be in touch. On Monday morning, after taking breakfast next to Olive's still empty table, John headed back to the workshop and the vat containing the partial remains of Mr. Randeacon's body. The soup still had lumps in it, but Haig took it as good enough and decided to dump the rest of the thick liquid out into the yard, where he had emptied the rest of it the day before. Haig then went on to the jewellery shop, where he decided to sell Olive's bracelets and rings. They had quoted £130 the day before for probate purposes, but would only pay £100 now. John was annoyed, but he needed the money. They didn't have the full hundred in the shop, so they gave him £60 and said he could call in the next day to collect the rest. Haig then drove back to Edward at Crawley and partially repaid the loan he had taken earlier in the week before heading back to the Onslow court. When he pulled up his Alvis outside the hotel, he was greeted by a mass of press, shouting questions and snapping photos. They had been waiting there for some time. Amazingly, Haig jumped out of his car, climbed the steps of the hotel, and then turned to the press to take questions. Eventually, the police decided to go around to the factory on West Street, and they spoke with Edward. It was revealed that John was not a director of the company and received no salary from them. He just acted as a representative on occasion and used a desk on the top floor sometimes. They discussed the fingernail enterprise, and Edward said that he hadn't been interested in the idea. They asked where John kept his things and were told that he didn't have much of anything in the factory, but he might have stored some stuff in the workrooms over on Leopold Road. This piqued the police's interest, and they arranged to meet him there the next morning. When morning rolled round, Edward met the police at the workshop and opened the gate that he had a key for. Haig still had the keys to the padlock, though. The crowbar that the police had brought with them didn't work, so they rummaged around in the yard until they found a metal pole that did the trick. The door to the workroom was open. When they made it inside, they saw the vats that the acid had been kept in, and a leather case embossed with the letter H. Edward said that he hardly used the place and didn't know what any of the materials were for. They tried to open the case but couldn't, and rather than remove it from the property without a warrant, 
they got a set of skeleton keys and opened the case to reveal papers and passports, ration cards and bank books, some in Haig's name and others in the name of McSwan or Henderson. There was also a revolver tucked in with the documents and a receipt from a cleaner's for a Persian lamb coat. The coat clicked with the police, and they spent the rest of the evening trying to get in touch with the owners of the cleaners in order to identify the coat as the same as Olive's, and pick it up from the shop. Meanwhile, the papers had run reports of the missing woman and had included details like the coat she was wearing and what jewellery she had had on. The owner of the jewellery store happened to read the paper and realised that the bracelets, rings, and crucifix necklace he had purchased earlier in the week bore a striking resemblance to the jewellery of Ms. Durand Deacon. He contacted the police and gave a description of the man who had sold the pieces to him. The following day, Monday, the police travelled to identify the items as olives. That afternoon, the police returned to the Onslow court and asked Haig to help them with their inquiries. They asked him about the fur coat, and then they asked, had he been in the area of the jewellery store? And that was all it took for him to admit that he had killed Olive and dissolved her body in acid. He then asked the detective what chances there were for someone to be released from Broadmoor an infamous hospital for the criminally insane. Haig had thought that, because there was no body, there could be no crime. So he told the police how he had brought Ms. Durand Deacon out to the workshop and shot her. He then told them that he had drained her blood and drank it, before putting her in the drum and adding the acid. After he confessed what had become of Olive, he was asked about the identification papers that had been found in the case bearing the names McSwan and Henderson. He confessed to having killed William McSwan and dissolved his body in acid and poured his remains down a drain in his basement flat at Gloucester Road in 1944. And his parents, Donald and Amy McSwan, a year later in 1945, he then went on to tell them how he had killed Dr. Archibald Henderson and then his wife in 1948 and had treated their bodies the same way as Olive Durand Deacon's by disposing of them in the yard at Leopold Road. Donald McSwan was tall, fair and handsome. He ran a successful amusement arcade business and had employed Haig as a chauffeur when Haig had first moved to London. Haig had a knack for machines and had helped to repair the amusements, eventually helping his friend, who he now called Mac, run the business. Mac never married, and eventually he and Haig took rooms in the same house. That house was bombed out, and Mac returned home to his parents, with Haig moving in with Barbara's parents. Mac had been a conscientious objector during the war and had had a few convictions for petty offences. When he suddenly disappeared in September 1944, leaving all his belongings in the flat, it was thought that it had probably had something to do with his evading the draft and his conscientious objector status. None of his housemates at the time objected when a man turned up claiming to be Mac's father and removed all of his belongings. There may have also been little discussion about his disappearance because 
Mac was part of the London gay scene at the time, and his only known associate at his last address was a 16-year-old boy who he called his nephew. Haig said that he had dealt with Mac's parents in much the same manner and for much the same reasons. He had needed their money and they had quite a few properties between them. Haig had forged their signatures and disposed of their assets after he dissolved them in drums and dumped them down his drain. Haig had met the Hendersons when he answered an ad that they placed offering a property that they owned for sale. Archibald had been a West End doctor until his alcoholism forced him to stop. He'd been left a considerable sum of money by his first wife when she passed away, and he had once discussed plans with Haig to make rocking horses out of tubular steel. He and his second wife Rose had a rocky relationship, which was often marred by violence or absences from the home. Haig shot Dr. Henderson in the head with his own revolver, and then told Henderson's wife that he was ill and she needed to go see him. Haig then shot her too. They ended up, just like the McSwans, in vats of acid, but then were dumped into the yard in Crawley. Haig added that he had drained some of their blood and drank it when making his confession to the police. He then said he'd paid their hotel bill and sold their property. He wrote letters to the family members to keep up the ruse that they had left and gone to South Africa. Haig had kept their red setter, Pat. The next day, Tuesday the 1st of March, the police accompanied a pathologist to the yard in Crawley where they scoured the workshop and its surrounds for what we would now call forensic evidence. There was a light spray of blood droplets found on the wall, and they were processed. They found sheets of red cellophane that Haig had been showing to Olive when he shot her. They went through the contents of the drums and in the newest looking one found a pinkish handbag and some lumps of bone and fat. The pathologist ordered that the topsoil in the yard be dug three inches deep and sifted to gather anything that might have been dumped out there. John Haig's quarters in the hotel were searched and a shopping list, including sulfuric acid and a drum, was found. His Alvis sports car was searched and a penknife with traces of blood was found there. At 2.15 that afternoon, John was formally charged with the murder of Olive Duran Deacon. He was quickly brought to the magistrate's court, where he was remanded in custody. Haig said nothing except to request that legal aid be dealt with at another time. The next day, Haig received a letter from the News of the World, a now-defunct tabloid newspaper, offering to pay for his legal representation. The policeman who had taken his initial statement met him in the prison, and John decided to ask him what he thought about John's ability to get into Broadmoor. While he was there, John asked him if his story added up, and then went on to confess three further murders to him. John had told him that he knew their names, but he said he didn't know any of them well. The first victim Haig described was a 33-year-old woman with dark hair and of slim build who he had met in Hammersmith. She went with him back to his basement flat where he hit her over the head and then drank her blood. 
The second was a man that he had met in a pub and had a few drinks with before taking him back to the flat to show him his inventions. Again, Haig stated that he hit the man over the head and then drained blood from him. Finally, Haig told the policeman about another woman, who he said was named Mary. He'd met her and had a meal in a cafe before bringing her back to the basement and hitting her over the head and tapping her for blood. No evidence for any of these three murders has ever been found. That afternoon, a Mr. Summerfield, a reporter from the News of the World, came by the prison to reiterate his offer for a full legal team for Haig's defence, in return for exclusive access to John's story. Meanwhile, publicity tended towards the tawdry with headlines such as Victims of Vampire and Vampire Confesses appearing in the Daily Mail, which was the News of the World's main competition. In response to this, Haig's new and expensive legal team took the publications to court seeking an injunction, stating that they were impairing Haig's ability to get a fair trial. Coincidentally, it would also ensure that the news of the world would have an exclusive scoop by the time the trial had finished. While in prison, John decided to play up this reputation as a vampire and a madman. He was being observed by the prison's medical team and tried to convince them that he was drinking his own urine and that he had a thirst for blood. His legal team called on the experience of psychiatrist Dr. Yellowlees as the main crooks of their defence. Haig was examined by doctors for the state as well as Dr. Yellowlees. John recounted to them dreams that he had had of a forest turning into crucifixes and saying that he had a fixation with blood. He blamed this fascination on his overly religious upbringing. He also likened himself to Jesus and the Bible, pointing out that both had owned nothing. The fact that Jesus' followers had willingly given over food and shelter to him was a concept that seemed lost on Haig. He also confusingly continued to deny that he had killed for financial gain, saying instead that it was some sort of bloodlust that had come over him. The doctors for the prosecution found that while there was definitely some mental disturbance present, this did not rise to the level of insanity. The defense of insanity was first set out in the McNaughton case in the mid-1800s, where McNaughton was a paranoid individual who thought that people were coming after him. He became convinced that the only way to stop this interference with his life was to assassinate the Prime Minister. So he took a pistol and started shooting. He managed to hit Prime Minister Peel's secretary, who died of his wounds five days later. The rules set down in the McNaughton case state that a person must be suffering from a disease of the mind that means that they do not know that what they are doing is wrong that they don't know the nature or quality of their act. Bear in mind as well that insanity is a defence, and so the burden of proof is therefore on the accused to make their case. The trial of John George Haig began on the 18th of July 1949 and was held in Lewes County Hall. There was still pomp and ceremony surrounding court sittings at that time, and the judge arrived not only wearing the customary red robes, horsehair wig, and carrying a nosegay, 
but he and the high sheriff arrived to trumpet fanfare. John pled not guilty before the court. The witnesses for the prosecution took the stand one by one, the police officers and Constance Lane and Haig's friend Edward Jones. Evidence was shown and recounted to the jury of ten men and two women. They described John's movement that weekend, and what had been found at the storehouse, the gun, the identity papers, the handbag. The pathologist gave evidence of the bloodstains on the wall, described how they had found a set of dentures and some human remains, including gallstones in the sifted soil from the yard. When the crown rested, Haig's defence team set out that they would be relying on the defence of insanity, and pointed out that none of the evidence heard up to this point dealt with the accused's state of mind at the time of the crimes, which was of primary concern here. There was only one witness for the defence, and that was Dr. Yellowlees. It was up to him to convince the jury that Haig was suffering from a mental disease at the time of the crime, and that he did not know what he was doing, or that it was legally wrong. Yellowlees outlined Haig's childhood and his overly religious upbringing. He described his dreams and obsessions with blood, but he didn't seem convinced himself that Haig's case fell under the McNaughton rules, and was relying entirely on Haig's own statements regarding his childhood and his motivations to come to the conclusion that he had paranoid delusions, which caused him to commit this crime. Yellowlees stated that this madness coming from his paranoid constitution, lasted up to and through the actual act of murder, but got around the argument that he had covered up the killings by saying that after the murders, John had recovered his senses somewhat and was able to go about covering up the crimes. He stated that although John knew that his crimes were punishable by law, he by no means thought that they were morally wrong and said basically that God would be his judge. Yellowlees was not prepared to make a definitive statement on whether John knew what he was doing was wrong at the time he killed Olive Duran Deacon, however. When the prosecution cross-examined the defense's only witness, they pointed out that Yellowlees had in fact only spoken to Haig for some two hours, and that all of Yellowlees' conclusions were being drawn from information given to him by Haig, who had a criminal history of committing frauds. They also got him to admit that, in all likelihood, Haig had known that what he was doing was punishable by law, also known as wrong. The jury seemed lost by all the pedantic wrangling going on between the lawyers and the doctor, and the situation wasn't improved by the defense's long closing speeches. To contrast, the prosecution's closing was short and to the point. The only thing to be proved was the insanity issue and once you removed assumptions and listened carefully to what Dr. Yellowlees had said, it would be impossible to find that the defendant was insane at the time of the crimes. The judge summed up the evidence and gave an overview of the McNaughton rules again to the jury. They not only needed to believe that Haig was mad to some degree, but that his madness was such that he didn't know what he was doing, and didn't know that it was wrong, and he would likely be punished for it. Then the jury left to deliberate. It was 4.25pm, and it was the end of the second day in court. 
At 4.40 p.m., the jury returned after only 15 minutes of deliberation. They were asked if they were all agreed upon a verdict. They were. They found Haig guilty of the murder of Olive Duran Deacon. Haig had nothing to say when asked if he would like to respond to the verdict, and the sentencing occurred directly after. Murder at the time in Britain had a compulsory sentence of death by hanging. John George Haig would not be going to Broadmoor. John was brought to what was known as the Execution Suite in Wandsworth Prison, where he continued to write letters to his family and girlfriend, and finished the memoir he was writing for the News of the World. The journalist Summerfield even visited him twice in his last days in the prison. On his second visit, Haig left him with the instructions as to what clothing his likeness in Madame Tussauds' waxworks should wear. He was visited a few days before the hanging to take a mould of his face for the wax statue that would stand in the House of Horrors wearing his green suit. John remained polite to the last, trading niceties with his few visitors, the prison guards, warden and the chaplain who had known him when he was in prison in Dartmoor. The day before the execution was to occur, Albert Pierpoint, Britain's most famous executioner, arrived at the prison to prepare the gallows and measure the drop. Ensuring that his measurements were correct was vital to a successful hanging. If the drop was too long for Haig's height and weight, it might decapitate him, and if it was too short, he'd likely suffer a slow, painful strangulation, rather than the quick break to the prisoner's spine. A few minutes before 9am on the morning of the 10th of August 1949, Haig had his wrists bound by Pierpoint and was led to the execution chamber. A white hood was put over his head and then the rope went around his neck. Quickly, the trapdoor was opened and that was the end of John George Haig. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. Mens Rea is supported in part by our generous listeners on Patreon. Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash pod to see how you can help out. And check out the benefits of patronage, like podcast goodies and bonus content. Our theme music is Quinsong First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do.